brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. We have special news for you. The forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. Are you going to send me or anybody that I know to a camp? We have people that are stupid. That it's disgraceful and laughable. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Peter Robinson. I'm James Lilacs. Our guests today are Sorab Amari about Iran and Byron York on Washington. Let's have ourselves a podcast. Bye-bye. It's the Ricochet Podcast number 384. We're brought to you by fine people at Tracker. Your phone, your wallet, your keys, you know they're plotting against you. They're hiding somewhere trying to make you late. Well, their sick game is finally over thanks to Tracker. We'll tell you a little bit more about that later. And we're brought to you by Casper. Casper is a sleep brand that makes expertly designed products to help you get the best rest one night at a time. Go to casper.com slash ricochet and use the promo code ricochet for $50 off selected mattresses. And we're brought to you by Harry's. Harry's is all about a great shave at a fair price. Harry's is so confident you're going to love their blades, they'll give you their trial shave set for free when you sign up at harrys.com slash ricochet. Just pay for shipping. And we're brought to you also by Ricochet itself. Listen, in these uncivil times, it's possible to have civil conversations. Really, it is. Even with people you like but disagree or people you may not kind of sort of like all that much but you have something in common, Ricochet is the place where people come together and have these conversations because there's a code of conduct. You can't say some things, not because we're being censorious prudes, but because you know what YouTube descends into, profanity and madness, right? So the code of conduct is simply about how people treat each other in the comments, and it makes for a much better reading internet experience. Hey, give Ricochet a try and get your first month free. That's ricochet.com slash join. Ricochet.com slash join. And you'll make Rob Long wherever he is, very happy if you do so. And you'll make Peter happy, too. Peter, hey, how are you doing, California? It's four below here in Minnesota. What are your temps like there? Oh, thank you. I was about to say it's a kind of grim, rainy day here, but when you tell me that it's four below where you are, I can rejoice in my way. I don't know, it's 60 degrees, 62, something like that. You know, when um, I think dim, rainy, when I think dim and rainy and gray and damp, Steve Bannon comes to mind presently. <laughs> um, and, of course, he's been the story, part of the story this week, uh, thanks to his, his effulsive comments uh, that Michael Wolff has translated into a book. What do you think is going to become of Bannonism? Is it a spent force? Um, is he gone? Will the mantle be picked up by somebody else? Uh, what do you think? Hard to, to – he is a spent force in any substantive sense. He has no – I believe – it's still unclear at least according to what I've read whether he's going to stay with Breitbart or the people who back Breitbart are going to toss him out altogether. But as best I can tell, he lacks any uh, institutional presence in politics absent Breitbart. On the other hand, the press loves him. He's so outrageous. You can't 
change channels and see Bannon, this disheveled look, hasn't shaved in three days, bloodshot eyes, and yet there he is on your television saying arresting outrageous things. The press just loves him because he's good copy in himself and because they can use him against Trump. So my guess is that Steve Bannon is going to be around for a long, long time, but have declining political influence. That's my guess. In fact, his political influence may essentially be over already. Yeah, I, I don't I don't think anybody's looking for that 2020 bid. I mean, it's interesting when you say the media loves him, because when you see this shambling hobo figure uh, saying these things, you can't uh, not turn away. Uh, you can't not be riveted. I, I, I'm not riveted. I Oh, you're I, not. No, I'm not. I, I find the man repellent and I have no interest in what he has to say. I just don't. I, I never have. I, I, I find him to be like. Yeah, yeah, no. So I, I don't pay any attention to him. And I mean, I get secondhand sometimes when he says something or it filters through or it pops up on Twitter. But the whole bright, I, I mean, I, I left Breitbart years ago. Um, I, I'm not interested when he speaks because why, why would I care now what a post-White House Steve Bannon says? When he's in there, when he was in there and you would hear these things coming out about his, some of his beliefs, yeah, the, then they're pertinent. But now, why would anybody care? Why to the moment that he left would anybody care? And aren't well, we sort of, isn't it, isn't it sort of, uh, aren't we obliged maybe to turn away from times from, from these things so that we don't get the next iteration of Bannon, which is worse? Oh, well. The, you know, no, the media no, said they no, love no, this guy, let's if, find another one. If, if you were, if you were to say, I mean, the, 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 the general tenor of your remarks is he has no political power. He's saying repellent things. Wouldn't it be better for all of us if we just turned away? Answers to all three of those. Yes, yes, and yes. I'm just saying, I don't, I think he'll be around. He'll be on cable news for a long time to come because people find him arresting. And you're right there. When you say cable news, you know, the shows, I, I see them only when I walk past our, our vast sci-fi technologically advanced hub at the newspaper. And there's all of these screens going up and I read the chirons and I see what they're talking about. And that's, that's pretty much it because I don't pay it. The whole cable news world with its constant bonging and swooping and Mm -hmm. breaking and the rest of it, I find, I find annoying as hell. And so Mm -hmm. I just spend So if you don't spend any time in the cable news world, you have a different view of the imminence and the importance and the momentum of these things. The president, according to the book and what we hear elsewhere, spends a lot of time in this world, doesn't he? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. You're right about all of this. On his best night, Bill O'Reilly, no longer with Fox, Bill O'Reilly drew not quite 4 million viewers. Sean Hannity, who's now the big star at Fox, draws three, three and a half, two and a half in that range. Uh, CNBC, uh, NSNBC, I beg your pardon, CNN, MSNBC, add them all together and you're still talking on their dominant night about fewer than 10 million Americans. On the other hand, those 10 million Americans are all in the press. They're all in Washington. That's where the buzz lies. I'm with you. We'd all be a lot better off if we spent much less time. Well, you don't spend much time there. My own health would be better off, mental health, <laughs> if I spent less time in the buzz. But as best I can tell, um, from this book and from every other account, Donald Trump just loves cable television. What do you think about the book? Uh, from what you've read, the excerpts that you've read, um, everything we know now about the Gorilla Channel, uh, what do you think? I've read the excerpt that appeared in New York Magazine, and then I've read a few excerpts as the book was quoted in other places. In other words, I'm a long, long way from having read the book itself. Here's what I think. It is... It's irresistibly written in the manner of 
It's a kind of cross between People magazine and Woodward and Bernstein. So it's gossipy and a kind of um, gives you the same sense that you that you have. <laughs> not that I'm, I'm I'm sounding as though I do nothing but watch cable news and read People magazine. But when you're when you're reading at the checkout line at the grocery store, you see headlines about the stars and oh. What the real life of those people. So this, you have that feeling that it's taking you to the real life. I will say that the few people I know who are quoted in the book sound like themselves. I don't know whether they said what he, they are quoted as saying, but Wolf knows them well enough to make mm-hmm. them sound like themselves. It has that ring of authenticity. He clearly did spend a lot of time with the people he's portraying. On the other hand, Michael Wolf's previous books, this is a point that John Podhoritz made in his New York Post column yesterday, Wolf's has all kinds of errors in his previous books, and people are already picking up the errors that he's, that he's made in the excerpts that have appeared. Notably, he portrays a scene in which somebody mentions to President, someone recommends to President-elect Donald Trump that he named John Boehner, former Speaker of the House, as his chief of staff, and according to Wolf, Donald Trump replied, who's that? Who's John Boehner? And of course, Donald Trump has play, played golf with John Boehner, tweeted about John Boehner. The idea that he didn't know who John Boehner was is ridiculous. So oh, Wolf, has, well, Wolf has at least a, a handful of howlers in there in what we've already seen. Yes, I agree. Wolf has a record, and anybody who's been following him for years knows that you are going to be entertained, and also you should have an eyebrow cocked up skeptically for some of these things. Let's take a look at that Boehner anecdote. There are three possibilities. One, uh, Wolf made it up, and that he doesn't have a tape to back it up. He's quoting somebody who was in error, but it didn't happen. Two, it was a sarcastic remark by the president saying, you know, know, who, Uh, as if to cut him down to size. Three, he didn't remember. He may have tweeted him, he may have played golf with him, but he didn't remember because there's something about the guy that is short-sighted, that doesn't remember, that isn't all completely there, which is one of the points the book makes. He's not all there. And this is the interesting thing. It seems to me that we can go along and be happy with everything that's happening, Dow over 25,000. Um, uh, you know, the uh, ice ramping up, uh, we're getting, uh, you know, fewer regulations. It's all good. It's all good. It's all good. But we're turning away from the possibility that all of these things are saying about this guy that he's not all there. And this would not be unusual. This would, this would be odd, except that it comports with a lot of stuff that we've heard that anybody who's been following Donald Trump for 25, 30 years knows his character, knows who he is and knows that the idea of a guy who is who falls asleep with boredom when you try to inform him of his constitutional duties and doesn't really read and, you know, it lives in this sort of television <clears throat> script mentality. It's, it's, it's not that much of a surprise, but, but the GOP just shrugs and says, what are you going to do? That's my well, take. That's a pretty good answer. Actually. What are you going to do? Right. Uh, I- yeah, so he's forgetful. He's 70 years old. He, he forgets names. Maybe. Maybe he does. We don't even know that. Um, he watches a lot of TV. The other thing about the the, uh, the Wolf book is that it doesn't, when it comes right down to it, it tells us very little that's new. Of course, Donald Trump did not expect to win. Of course, he watches a lot of cable. All of this we already knew. Uh, so it's, it's, it's sort of fun in the gossipy sense. It's sort of outrageous. It 
enables us to get worked up about things all over again. But really, does it tell yep. us anything we don't know? Well, it, it's about the first year, and we all got the first year under our belt, and the first year was hell. Uh, now, we've forgotten about the first year because the second year seems to be going a little better. But it's still the same guy at the top of the organization, and the, the, these elements are going to play out again and again and again. But we'll see. And there are more issues in the world to talk about beyond how many hamburgers and cheeseburgers Donald Trump eats. I found the interesting thing to be that he goes to McDonald's because – uh, the food is prepared in advance, and you can't – if someone wants to poison you, they can't do it because you're, you're pointing at that burger there off the rack. Makes sense. Um, the unfortunate part, however, is when you go to McDonald's and you lose your keys. Huh? How's that, Rob? Rob Long would be around right now to say that was the worst transition he ever heard, and he'd be right. I did that just for him if he's listening. Hey, listen, when you do lose your keys, however, you know that it's impossible to do anything. You can't drive your car. You can't get into your house. What do you do? Well, that's why you should have put a tracker on the thing before. See, eight years ago, tracker, that's T-R-A-C-K, capital R, they changed everything. They released the first tracking device, and now they've done it again with the all-new tracker, Pixel. With the Tracker Pixel, you'll never have to worry about losing your things again. The Tracker Pixel is the lightest Bluetooth tracking device on the market. Place the Tracker Pixel on whatever you tend to lose, your keys, your wallet. You know, it's small enough you can fit it anywhere. So when you misplace an item that has the Tracker Pixel attached, you can use your smartphone and a 90-decibel alert to help you find it in seconds. And it even has a powerful LED light so you can find it in the dark. Lose your phone, by the way? Well, press the button on your tracker pixel and your phone rings, even if it's in silent mode, eh? You can locate your item even if it's miles away. How, you say? That's ridiculous. Bluetooth doesn't go that far. Listen, tracker user, that's you, is part of a large crowd-locating network in the world, the largest in the world. It's like Waze, except for, for, except for finding your things, not your way. And Tracker's 30-day 30, money-back guarantee means you have absolutely nothing, literally, to lose. Here's a special offer for listeners of you, the, the Ricochet Podcast, the Tracker.com slash Ricochet. Tracker.com slash Ricochet to get 20% off any order. That's spelled the Tracker, T-H-E-T-R-A-C-K-R.com forward slash Ricochet for 20% off. The Tracker.com slash Ricochet. And our thanks to Tracker for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. And now we have the pleasure of talking to Sorab Amamari. He's a senior writer at Commentary, and previously he spent five years as editor and columnist with the Wall Street Journal opinion pages in London and New York. You can follow him on Twitter, at Sorab Amamari. Welcome, and we're all eyes on Iran right now. Can you tell us what's happening? Because oddly enough, the story doesn't seem to be reported in the American press as much as you think it might be. Yeah, it's, the coverage has been a little bit uh, spotty, to say the least, but uh, for about a week now, there's been a um, popular uprising uh, uh, across the country, although it began in the city of Mashhad in the northeast of the country, a pious and conservative city um, where it seemed like people were angered by primarily economic issues, um, joblessness, inflation that's running 20 to 40 percent reportedly, um, and public graft, uh, the, the financial dealings of these regime-connected foundations for the poor and dispossessed, supposedly, but which are actually slush funds uh, where who knows you know, where the money comes from and where it goes, it seems to serve regime elites. So that anger sparked a protest in Mashhad, and very quickly they went nationwide. And this, the slogans began to shift from merely economic issues to outright opposition to the regime and interestingly to its policies in the Middle East. So one of the slogans that's been heard very 
commonly is which means not Gaza, not Lebanon, my life only for Iran. Another one is let Syria be, do something for me or think of me. So the people have connected, it seems, their uh, lack of material prosperity with the regime's Shiite revolutionary mission, its efforts to destabilize its own neighborhood, and in fact the nature of the regime. So that's what's been happening. The protests, my sense is, although again, it's very hard to know on a day-to-day basis exactly what's happening where, but the numbers have dwindled somewhat. The arrests have have gone up. I've heard as as many as a thousand people detained. Um, and this this is a regime that was founded by revolutionaries. Therefore, they're very good at dealing with potential revolutions. But that's the uh, that's the general outlay uh, outline of the of the scenario. So, Rob Peter Robinson here. By the way, I've read and admire your work for years now, and this is the first time we're speaking. It's just a pleasure to have you with us. Well, I'm uh, a big fan of your uh, your show at, at Hoover as well. So it's very nice. Thank you. Thank you. Thomas Erdbrink is the New York Times Tehran bureau chief. By the way, hold on. Let's stop. So Rob Amari is your name. You just, as far as I know, your your Persian, your Farsi accent was flawless. What's your personal background here? What is your own connection to events in Iran or to Iran itself? I was born there. I I was born there in 1985. And grew up there until I was 13, about to turn 14, when my mother and I left. We were not uh, political cases as such. I mean, I grew up in a in a typical urban secular milieu where uh, the regime was not popular, in, but it wasn't. We weren't running away, or we weren't political refugees or dissidents of any sort. And uh, so I moved to the U.S. and and uh, have not been back. But that's my connection. I still obviously care about it very much as my homeland, um, uh, but now more in a professional sense and from a different Right, sure. Do you still have any family connections in Iran? You know, some, but my father uh, died. He never left Iran, and he died uh, in early 2017. So now it's – and a lot of my family is, like many Iranian families, is spread across this Persian diaspora from – from Canada to Europe to, um, to, and certainly many in the U.S. Right. Okay. So Thomas Erdbrink, uh, bureau chief, Tehran bureau chief of uh, the New York Times, wrote, let's see, he wrote on December 29th that the protests were scattered, his word, and that they were dealing mainly with the government's handling of the economy, close quote, and you just let him have it in a piece that you wrote on commentary on January 3rd. You, by the way, you were at the Wall Street Journal in London and New York, and as of, seems to me it's still less than a year now, you've been at Commentary Magazine. Yes, uh, so, so why did you let the New York Times and Thomas Erdbrink have it? Well, I mean, I've been I've been reading Mr. Erdbrink's work, like many others who, who are Iran watchers. We, to some extent, you have to pay attention to what he reports. And I've always been... Uh, irritated by his reporting, which seems to me that it's, he is informed almost exclusively by the people who uh, are the putative quote unquote moderates and reformers in Iran. So he, that, that is his source. That's who he speaks to. And the, the wider kind of social strata that he's interested in are people who are broadly invested in the regime, but maybe think it, it could change things at the margins. And the, the whole worldview that comes across in his reporting is is so so much the the worldview 
of the Iranian moderates and reformists and the type of think tankers that he always relies on for interviews fit the same pattern. Um, and so, yeah, I let him have it this time around because he had written a piece earlier in November where mm-hmm. he wrote, he, he contended, it was a long feature, uh, which appeared on the front page of the, of the online homepage that suggested that the, the Trump administration's bellicose rhetoric and threats to walk away from the deal had consolidated the people behind the regime or rallied them to the flag, so to speak. And, and, and he also blamed Saudi Arabia um, and its efforts to counter Iranian expansionism in the region for the same development. Uh, and so I just couldn't help it when then, you know, just a few weeks later, a nationwide right. uprising broke out just to say, suggest that his, his reporting is not, does not match up with reality. It suggests it comes from a kind of ideological place. So, Robbie, that's that's what sticks out to me when I hear coverage not only from American sources, but say the BBC. I was listening to a BBC interview yesterday with a woman in uh, London, an expatriate, and the, the interviewer was grilling her. He was antagonistic toward her because of her opposition to the regime. And it seems as if um, among the intelligentsia of the, of, of the West, there's this idea that somehow the Iranian revolution is this natural, organic expression of the people instead of something imposed on the Persian culture. There, I, and I don't understand why they have this sympathy towards it. It may be just simply that they are instinctively guided to side with someone who sides against the West out of their own perhaps a self-hatred. Does that make sense to you, or is there some other deeper explanation for why they seem so invested in the continuation of this regime? I think that kind of cultural post-colonial anxiety is certainly part of it. Um, Another part of it is the fact that beginning in the first few years of, of this millennium, a narrative took hold, and it was pushed mainly by one journalist named Stephen Kinzer, who wrote this very simplistic, he doesn't read uh, or write Persian, but a very simplistic account of an event in 1953, where partly through some degree of CIA and MI6 involvement, um, uh, a, the Iranian uh, Prime Minister uh, Mossadegh was overthrown. Um, it was much more complicated. That movement actually had support from from the broad segments of society itself, Iranians, who worried that right. he was Mossadegh was empowering communists, including the Islamists who later uh, launched the 1979 Islamic Revolution, were against Mossadegh. So there's no the is the, the, the current regime cannot use Mossadegh as a grievance against the West because it supported the coup. But, <laughs> right. so, but, but actually, that's can you hold just to ter- Terry Terry on that point for just a moment, because at least if you're of my generation, when you went through college, you heard over and over and over again. Well, Eisenhower installed the Shah. You know, that's not quite. And that's either inaccurate or just, or the merest statement of a much more complicated picture. Is that right? That's right. And the best book for this is uh, is um, Abbas Milani's biography of the Shah. Although there have been others, which is which have been uh, they're called revisionist books because they go against the Kinzer narrative that the Shah was a uh, was a, in, a, imposed against a democrat quote unquote democratically elected Mossadegh. Um, and that the coup d'etat was purely an act of outsiders, when in fact, uh, as, as Professor Milani 
amply demonstrated again it had broad support in the society including from 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 the islamists so i think that's another factor in how reporters think about iran and i think a third one frankly is uh many of them and i speak from experience because I've, i've talked to some of them where when they privately speak about iran they'll say you know we went into iraq and that was a disaster so they have this sense of mission that everything must turn on the idea that there are moderates and hardliners in Iran. There are the bad guys who are, uh, you know, Islamist fundamentalists, but there are also others within a regime, within a regime that is constitutionally Islamist and anti-American and anti-Semitic, but there are good guys within it. And the way the cornerstone of U.S. policy should always be to find those moderates and empower them, even as the Iranian people themselves, in their chants, in their discontent, in the rhetoric suggests that they don't make much of a distinction, that living under Rouhani isn't that much different from living under Ahmadinejad, the previous president who was the uh, troglodyte, supposedly. She was, but, but it, there are the, the, the distinctions here, the West makes much more of, a, of an issue out of them than I think the actual Iranian people do. Right. And if, if you're, again, I mentioned my generation, but Ronald Reagan was excoriated for supposing that you could draw distinctions among members of the regime in Iraq. The press, during the the Iran-Contra business, the press just pounded him. There are no moderates in the Iranian regime, you fool Ronald Reagan. And now the press itself is saying, you fool Republicans, there are moderates, you must help. Anyway, sorry, I just can't resist (laughs) pointing out a little historical irony there. Well, the original sin of 53 is pointed out every time this comes up. What is the percentage of the Iranian population that's under 30? It's big, isn't it? It's two-thirds. Right. So these are people who did not exactly grow up under the whip hand of the Shah. But let's switch to, to current events. How do you evaluate the Trump administration's reaction to all this? Well, as, as Peter knows, I've, I've been a uh, you know, certainly when the, the election was happening, I was I was not an enthusiastic Trumper. But I, as a as a critic, I still have to be intellectually honest, and I have to say that they, that they've been much better than the Obama administration, let's say, was in 2009, where with the statements from the president's own tweet account, uh, really really eloquent speech on January 2nd by Nikki Haley at the UN, which then resulted in today's. Um, uh, uh, Security Council meeting, I believe, is happening today. Um, uh, yeah, Vice President Pence's interview with Voice of America, clear support, the sense that, look, this is an adversarial regime. Uh, whatever comes of this uprising, it, 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 it's up to the U.S., both morally and for strategic reasons, to try to weaken the Islamic Republic. Uh, and you get that the people who are, who are running the show now understand that. Could they do more? Yeah, I think some things. One would be to reform Voice of America and Radio Farda, which are supposed to be uh, doing what they did, uh, what Voice of America and Radio for Europe did under communism. But unfortunately, they've been, a lot of the people that they hire, I don't think by any, it's not any conspiracy, but they're just Iranians who have that same Erdbrink mentality. Uh, And so there's far too much, for example, anti-Israel stories or anti-Trump stories on these outlets where you wonder why, why are U.S. taxpayers funding this? So if, there's a, if nothing comes of this, if there's a spur uh, to, to reform U.S. public broadcasting, that would be good. Um, I think there could be sanctions on individual 
human rights violators that the U.S. could announce. If you're identified as a major human rights violator, we'll cut you off from world financial markets. That might change the mentality of some people in the security apparatus and make them rethink their support. Um, but again, this this could go on. I mean, uh, we don't know. It could it could be a one-off thing that fizzles and then resurfaces 10 years from now, or it could be the beginning of a regime collapse scenario. So the U.S. role is essential because whether we like it or not, the U.S. is deeply invested in Mideast affairs. But, and so when it steps away from it, chaos follows. What is your sense of it? What is uh, how to, what is the avalanche potential here? What is the what is the possibility that any day now we might wake up to see that the numbers had spiked again, that there were now tens of thousands in the street. Not very likely, is it your feel? They've got the regime has it back under control or not? What, 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 what do you think? I think it's unlikely in the immediate term. But right. what the demonstrators have shown is just the depth of social discontent. And it's notable that it's not coming solely or even primarily from uh, the urban middle class, the type of people you know, my, my family right. came from before we left the country. Right. It's coming from the people who were supposed to be the base, the fiber of the revolution. This was a revolution of the dispossessed, and the dispossessed are saying, we're still dispossessed. And in fact, a lot of them are chanting uh, uh, Reza Shah, Ruhet Shah, which means Reza Shah, you know, bless your soul or long live. Uh, many of them born after the revolution, but they had this sense. It's not like they're clamoring for liberal democracy as, as we understand it, but they, they want right. a sense of national dignity. And they remember a time, at least from history, books, or footage where, they, where you could be a dignified Iranian, and Iranianness is not subjected to mullahocracy. So, um, so you would say the events, events in Iran over the last week or so would have, uh, this may be a little bit of a reach, would have something of the same weight as Pope John Paul II's visit to Poland in 1979, in as much as don't expect regime change anytime soon, but recognize that the regime has been shown by its own people to be completely illegitimate. The only difference, I, I agree with you insofar in as you stated it, but the, and, and the reason that I do despair sometimes is that these movements don't have a clear leader. Right. Unlike, unlike, that was like Pope John Paul II. So you there's have, no... There's no Pope John Paul II. There's no Lech Vienza, as far as we know. Or, or serious organization. I mean, at the end of the day, I think social media or whatever goes so far. You need cadres. You need people who can organize to, to um, uh, uh, get people to come out at, at certain strategic points and moments and so forth. And it's all happening organically. And I, you know, I believe in old-fashioned revolutions. You need, you need, uh, you need leadership and, and organization. Uh, so, Rob, listen, last question, and uh, this is not a short question. This is a this is a request for a teaser. You're writing a book. Tell us very briefly, at, at least uh, as a fellow convert, I don't think it's likely to be a brief, con but just tell us very briefly what the book is about and when it will come out. And believe me, we'll have you back on when the book is out. Well, I'd really appreciate it. It's a memoir. It's due in February 2019 is when I have to write it, but I'm aiming to finish it this month or early February so that it can come out sooner. And whoa, it's a whoa, memoir. whoa. We're talking to a writer who intends to turn in a manuscript a year ahead of schedule? Yeah, because I'm enthusiastic about this book. I mean, you... It really is writing itself. I'm maybe halfway there. Uh, so if I can just churn out, you know, 750,000 words a day, it'll be done very quickly. And I hope, I mean, I, I keep telling various interviewers that I'm going to do this perhaps okay, in ahead. order to keep myself to it. 
but it's a, it's it's a spiritual and intellectual autobiography. When I left Iran, I was uh, I, I had decided that I was an atheist, and as much as I looked to America as this great place to be, when I wasn't there, when I was longing to be there, when I arrived, I quickly became a kind of radical leftist. I, you know, I started with with Nietzsche, who's not exactly a leftist, but then it led me to you know Marxism and Hegel and things like that. So the book is really an account of how I went from that to appreciating Pope Benedict XVI's writing and appreciating Catholicism at a sort of aesthetic and intellectual level, and then ultimately convincing that it's the, it's the Ark of Salvation and being received into the Church in December 2016. Wow. Well, we look forward to the book, and we look forward to talking to you when it comes out, and perhaps by then we'll be talking about a, a change of regimes in Tehran and the effect that that would have on the Middle East. On the whole world, it would, be a, it would have a profound effect on the world. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Sir Rob. We'll talk to you later. Thank you. Thank you, Sarab. You know, when he was mentioning the uh, the youth of the American pop, of the Iranian population, when I was in college, I had a friend, Iranian student, who uh, very smart guy, just funny, hilarious, cultured, world weary, all of these things. And when the revolution happened, he wanted to go back. This guy was as worldly as they as you can get, but he admired Khomeini. Khomeini was a great man. He felt some sort of some religious obligation to go back, and he went back, and then the war happened, the Iran-Iraq war. He disappeared, and I just, for years and years, we just imagined him swallowed up into this machinery, this, this extraordinarily westernized, but, you know, Persian, smart guy, gone. And then about five years ago, we got a call. He was back in town. It was astonished. And we met at the old restaurant where we used to work. And I said, Mehdi, what happened to you? You, you went back to Iran. We, we lost you. And he said, oh, I went back. It was horrible. I went right back. I moved back to Los Angeles just a month later. And he'd been in L.A. selling <laughs> rugs ever since. <laughs> good for him. Uh, <clears throat> yes, good for him. Because, uh, yeah, how would you want to go? I mean, for the people who did go back expecting some sort of paradise and found themselves, well, maybe for some it was paradise. Maybe for for a great deal of others, though, it was the sort of hell you get when I don't even want to try to make a transition here because it would be unfair to the people who suffered at the hands of the regime. Stop. 30, three hash marks, as we say at the end of a piece in newspapering when we're done. Turn the page. Hello there. How would you like to sleep better? I'm here to tell you how. Casper. Casper is what... It's a sleep brand that makes expertly designed products to help you get the best rest one night at a time. Now, the experts at Casper work tirelessly to make a quality sleep surface that cradles your natural geometry in all the right places. After all, you spend a third of your life sleeping, so you might as well be comfortable, right? Well, the original Casper mattress combines multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with just the right amounts of sink and bounce. And if you don't know what that means, you'll know the minute you get into a Casper. Its breathable design helps you sleep cool and it regulates your body temperature throughout the night. This is now available in two other mattresses, by the way, the Wave and the Essential. Hmm. The Wave features a patent-pending premium support system that mirrors the natural shape of your body. And the Essential has a streamlined design at a price that won't keep you up at night, shall we say. All Casper products are designed, developed, and assembled in the United States. And the prices are affordable because Casper cuts out the middleman and sells directly to you. Every Casper mattress is delivered right to your door in this small box that makes you say, how do they do it? How do they get that thing in there? And there's free shipping and hassle-free returns to the U.S. and Canada as well. Plus, you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. I love it. I've loved it ever since I had one. And like I say, I'm kind of looking forward to a wave to try that out too. 
just for a different Casper experience. If Casper comes up with a mattress, I want to try it. You will, too. Here's a special offer. $50 toward the select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash ricochet and using the promo code ricochet at your checkout. That's casper.com slash ricochet. Promo code ricochet for $50 off select mattresses. Terms and conditions, of course, apply. Thanks to our friends at Casper for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. And now, Byron York, who, come on, you know him, you know him. You love him. Chief political correspondent from the Washington Examiner, Fox News contributor, and the author of The Vast Left-Wing Conspiracy. Byron, welcome back. D.C., it's a flame. It's absolutely gone mad with this, uh, with this Wolf Bannon book. What's the, what's the fallout today? Gentlemen, how are you? Well, I think we've seen a change from the beginning. The, 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 the first leak, um, I shouldn't say this, the first strategic preview of the yes. uh, Wolf book was all of the Bannon stuff. And that was pretty newsy to have uh, uh, Bannon uh, attack the president, president's family the way he did, suggest that the uh, June 2016 meeting in, in Trump Tower was an act of treason. I mean, it was really uh, quite amazing. And I think that um, Bannon is justifiably suffering a lot of blowback from that. You've seen uh, you've seen candidates that he supports around the country, like um, Kelly Ward in Arizona, saying, uh, Steve Bannon? Who, who's that? He, oh, yeah, he was some guy who supported me. Um, plus, you've seen the Mercer family, the wealthy benefactors, uh, pull back a bit. So, so that's, that is that. But I think when, when the book came out and, um, and people discussed more about it, I think the, the tone is changing or the subject matter is changing to Donald Trump, the unqualified or unfit president. Uh, to from from on on one side, people arguing that he just doesn't know enough or is not interested enough to uh, uh, to be president. To those who order uh, argue that he's uh, mentally unfit to be president, and they're fitting this into their twenty fifth amendment argument. And Byron, is there actually? I guess what I'm trying. So he, Peter here sits in California, trying to understand the extent to which what's taking place in Washington is simply noise something at which Washington is very good, and the extent to which, in fact, there are substantive arguments that are being tested for the first time or being returned to, and this time it looks as though they may have more legs. So we've always known, anybody who's been paying any attention at all has known since the primaries at the latest that Donald Trump was not a well-read or intellectually curious man, that he had a short attention span, that he watched the cable news shows, and that he liked to eat at McDonald's. So what's what in the current discussion of the Wolf book seems to be new or to have legs that it did? As Cato Byrne used to say, thank you. That's exactly what we've known for quite a long time. And it's not really a surprise. Uh, the book, of course, focuses on those Wild West first early months of the Trump White House uh, right. under Chief of Staff Reince Priebus, in which, you know, there seemed to be no uh, real uh, order to things. I had uh, one reporter the other day call it Grand Central Station uh, at that time. And, you, you know, you read it and you think, wow, you know, if Trump were smart, he would uh, bring in somebody like John Kelly to help, you know, to restore <laughs> exactly. some order here. Well, of course, that's exactly what he did. So, uh, you know, in, in some sense, this is a story of the White House that ceased to exist um, several months ago. Uh, but as far as the president's personal traits are concerned, absolutely 
a lot of that was litigated during the election, um, and we um, and it hasn't really changed. Uh, my feeling about this, my sort of personal opinion about this, is that Trump, throughout the campaign and throughout his presidency, basically signals a set of policy preferences that his supporters like. Uh, going to be tough on trade and be tough on immigration. Um, going to get going to bring your jobs back. This kind of stuff. I'm going to kick the hell out of ISIS, and um, they don't care, and he doesn't care about the specifics of some of this stuff. But uh, I think you saw from a number of year-end um, reviews, including one written by me, that uh, there was a lot. You know, when you when you look back over 2017, there were a lot of things that a, a conservative would be pretty happy with. Uh, because Trump actually did move in the direction of those instincts that he signaled during the campaign. Hey, so Byron, may I ask it? You, you mentioned your own personal opinion, and I. This is a question I've been meaning to ask you, and and it's a personal question. You are, for those who don't know you, you are an Alabama gentleman of the. You're a first-rate reporter, and you're tough in questioning and going after sort. I stipulate all that, but you're also an Alabama gentleman of the old school. You grew up in the South when manners mattered, when demeanor mattered, and everybody who knows you, gentlemen, would be one of the first words they would use in describing Byron York. Somehow or other, even though you have been, it's your job to to report on the on the character and person of Donald Trump who is, if ever there was an ungentleman or a bizarro world Southern gentleman, it's the non-gentleman from Queens. And you have throughout, even during the primaries, resisted, oh, I don't know, the Bill Crystal temptation to say, this guy, I get him out of my face. He's just unfit in and of itself for the presidency. Why is Byron York not a never Trumper? Did you never feel the temptation? Did you think it through at some point and say, I won't give in? How, why? Well, uh, first of all, thank you for all those wonderful words. Well, we got to get this recorded. And uh, <laughs> well, Southern gentlemen could get you thrown into jail I, uh, sometime soon. You know. I think during the uh, first of all, I was never a never trumper, and during the campaign, and I think I think I was relatively early, not the first, but relatively early uh, to take Trump seriously as a candidate. I wrote an article in May of 2015. Um, saying if what Trump were doing were being done by any candidate other than Donald Trump, it would be taken very seriously by the Washington commentariat and others, because by that time, for example, he had spent more time on the ground in Iowa than uh, I think Ted Cruz, uh, Jeb Bush, and somebody else, Chris Christie, put together at that time. Um, He had more people working for him. He was getting more people to come to his rallies and things like that. So I was watching him pretty early. And I think one thing that helps you take a candidate seriously is when you talk to um, to voters and the people who come to his rallies or the people who come to other people's rallies. And they took Trump seriously. I mean, they were entertained by him. But what he was able to do in the course of an hour, an hour and 15 minutes of rambling talk in which he talked about his golf courses and his TV shows and the club championship that he's won and his buildings and all of this stuff, he was still able to, 
to give them a, a set of those policy preferences that we were talking about that they came away with. I mean, he'd, he'd go on for an hour and 15 minutes. I would ask them later on, you know, wh- what do you think Trump's going to do? And they'd say he's going to bring our jobs back, he's going to build a wall, and he's going to kick the hell out of ISIS. And it's like they got bullet points from this from right. this guy who was just talking all around the world. So I think if you listen to the voters, they were making sense of him uh, in a way that a lot of the Washington commentary was not doing. And maybe it was because some of them just weren't going out and talking to people uh, or not. I, I, I don't know. But that just continued throughout the campaign. And uh, I personally thought that there was something of an overreaction to him in some conservative circles. Um, and um, then, of course, he secures the nomination, right. and you know we're, we're off to the races. So what I've tried to do, just as a reporter, is just basically um, view this thing down the middle. I, I don't think I have been blind to Trump's many flaws or in the ways in, this, in which this presidency is completely unlike any previous presidency. Um, but there have always been two levels with Trump. Right. And in the case of his political career, the, the level that too many people pay attention to or pay too much attention to is the hair-on-fire controversy of the day, which Trump himself stokes. Um, and then the, but the other level is the one foot in front of the other um, policy stuff, things that are actually getting done by Trump or the people that Trump has appointed. And that's what we saw in some of those year-end assessments of Trump. You, you added it all up and actually it looked pretty good. Um, Just to name three, yes. Neil, Neil Gorsuch is on the Supreme Court. We've had the most important, significant tax reform since 1986, and ISIS has been effectively destroyed. Not bad for a first year. There you go. Right. Not bad. And then you can add a lot of deregulation to that, which uh, many people think is already having a positive um, economic effect. And not just Neil Gorsuch, by the way. A record number of circuit court judges was confirmed. Not, right. not just nominated, confirmed, confirmed. this year. And so, you know, those are, and then, you know, the pipelines, energy policy, there's just a lot of stuff that happened that I think uh, Republicans, I'm not talking about Democrats, they they wouldn't like this, but Republicans would be happy with were they not so focused on the hair on fire controversy of the day. James James wants to take you someplace by. Right? Well, I, I, I'm I'm just my. There are so many things. There's so many things to unpack. Is <laughs> that phrase that I'm so tired of hearing puts it? Um, because I, mean, I was just thinking when you're talking about you know the two Trumps. There's the one the theatrical entertainer. Then there's the one foot in front of the other. We were always told during the uh, the campaign that Trump would assemble the best people. That we didn't need to hear specifics because his mind, his managerial deal making mind, would apprehend the keen details tease out what was necessary and craft the great solution. It seems now that people are sort of resigned to saying, well, he doesn't really read very much and he doesn't know the details, but he points in the right direction and then that's sufficient. Um, and, and, and does that seem, to, is that fair to say that, that, that people are content with a Donald Trump that simply points to where we want things to go and is not necessarily involved in the details themselves? Is that, well, is that... I, would, I would say when you say people, you have to remember this is a president with a job approval rating of about around 35 percent. 
So those people are, they're fine with it, but um, I think you'd have to say that a lot of other people are quite unhappy with it. Um, right, because I, you know, they, I think on the, uh, yes? You know, I was saying they're unhappy with it because they believe that he's this strange combination of malevolent genius, dark racism, American passions unleashed, that he is, he is intentionally crafting this American dystopia in which they will be forced into their handmaiden's tail camps and the rest of it. I mean, they, they see him as far more, as far more brilliant, Machia- brilliant Machiavellian and dark than, than the never Trumpers do for heaven's sakes. Anyway, you know, I never well, mind that point. I, I'm being tendentious. We should probably get to the <laughs> stuff that's coming up that you're there. Yes, in. James, but you're beautiful Actually, when let you're me, tendentious. Let me, let me say one thing to that, um, and, and I'll, I'll take a practical part out of what you just said, which was Trump during the campaign promised that he would hire the absolute best people, the best people to work in his White House. And I think the you know the recent departure of uh, Omarosa, uh, the, uh, the the tenure of Sebastian Gorka or Anthony Scaramucci just indicates that that was not true. Yeah. Now, on the other hand, Trump has brought in a number of first-rate people. I mentioned John Kelly, Mike, Mike, Mike Pompeo, James Mattis, Naomi Rao, uh, H.R. McMaster, Nikki Haley, Mark Short. There's a whole bunch of them who are really first-rate uh, people. And amazingly enough, they tend to do fairly well uh, when they're put in these jobs because they're good, solid, quality people. So I, I do think uh, there's going to be uh, departures after the first year of the Trump uh, administration, there there always are. There'll be more because of the just the craziness of Trump. Um, so it's extremely important that he uh, be able to hire uh, good quality people, which has always been a problem because there's so many of the Republican policy elites have been never Trump or at least strongly opposed to him. Yeah. Well, it's great that the second year is turning out to be adults. I just wish the first year had not been this parade of St. Vitus dance-inflicted clowns. But we're done. We're moving along. There's still, however, Russia out there. Or is there? What's the Russia story? Where does that sit today? Oh, you mean the investigation or the yeah. country? or uh, yeah. yeah, the investigation. Uh, here's you know, basically what we have. Um, the, you know, you have the three basic investigations. You have the two intelligence committees, Senate and House, and then you have the Mueller investigation. You also have a really interesting one going on in the Senate Judiciary Committee um, as well. But, um, you know, uh, the, the House investigating is going to, uh, House investigation is going to end up being a pretty partisan exercise. I think it's pretty clear you'll see a, a Republican report and a, and a Democratic report. Mm-hmm. Um, Devin Nunes, in my view, the, the chairman, the much-criticized chairman of the uh, House Intelligence Committee, has actually shaken loose a lot of interesting information about the Trump dossier. Um, and I think that uh, that's very, very valuable, and I don't think we've seen the end of it, and I think there's going to be more interesting stuff to come out about the behavior of the FBI and the Justice Department. But, um, Byron? Uh, al- the, almost yeah. al- almost a technical question here. Devin Nunes, Republican of the Central Valley here in California, who's the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, and he has been pushing the FBI and the Justice Department for, it seems to me, months now. They have been under subpoena for many weeks for information relating to the dossier, and they continued – well, you'll have to tell me what happened yesterday, but uh, they've been continuing to withhold information that this duly constituted chairman of the House Select Committee has been demanding and placed under subpoena. 
what can he, what can the committee or what can Congress do to the executive branch, to the FBI, to the Justice Department to force them to comply with the subpoena? I just don't know how it works. Yeah, a couple of things. If you look at this most recent letter from, from Nunes to uh, Rod Rosenstein, the, basically the acting attorney general for all of this stuff, um, you know, it, the, the letter demands that the FBI and Justice Department completely fulfill the August 24 subpoena wow. um, from, from the committee. So um, the, the letter was dated uh, January 4th, and the subpoena it refers to was August 24. Uh, now, we should not act as if the Justice Department and FBI have not turned over anything. It has been pulling teeth, but they have turned over a lot, and the fight is over some remaining stuff. Uh, but they really didn't start turning it over until Paul Ryan got involved, because this is the case. First of all, Nunes was, as you know, weakened by accusations that he had leaked um, uh, classified information, uh, that was referred to the House Ethics Committee, which basically semi-sidelined Nunes for several months while it investigated before uh, exonerating him and declaring that he did not uh, right. do what he had been accused of doing. So uh, Democrats and, and outside uh, uh, outside players like Fusion GPS could say, "Forget it. I'm not going to. I'm not going to obey your subpoena. You're you're this weakened, lame duck." non-chairman of this committee. Forget that. Um, well, first of all, he's now sort of fully the chairman again for this investigation as well. But also what he had to do, what Nunes had to do, was get the strength of the House of Representatives behind him. Because even if he had not had any problems, the executive branch could say, yeah, it's one committee chairman. Yeah, I know they're powerful, but uh, maybe we'll see how far we can push him. Right. But when the entire House of Representatives and the person of the speaker uh, gets behind it, then they really start feeling the pressure. And a few months ago, you actually saw Ryan get behind Nunes and come out and specifically accuse the FBI and Justice Department of, quote, stonewalling. And they began cooperating more after that. Doesn't mean they don't drag their feet. They just do. Um, but I think, well, I know, we had, a, we had a meeting maybe two days ago between uh, Rosenstein and Christopher Wray, the, the head of the FBI. They both came over to Paul Ryan's office and talked to him. And I mm -hmm. think this, this new last agreement that, yes, we're going to turn this stuff over, is a result Yes, Devin Nunes has been doing all the work, but there had to be muscle from the speaker behind it to make it happen. And now the muscle is there. Last question on this. Why doesn't the White House simply say this? We're talking about the executive branch of which the chief executive is chief executive. Why doesn't he say to the Justice Department and the FBI, I'm not getting into the details of this investigation, but I hereby order you to comply with the subpoena from the House Intelligence Committee. Why hasn't that happened? It's a good question, uh, and I think the the reason the White House has stayed out of it is that they just did not want to. Obviously, the president is a very interested party here, and uh, in in more than just a principal way, the the president should be an interested party in having his administration, uh, you know, uh, obey congressional subpoenas, but. Um, I think they just, given all the the drama involved, I think they just didn't want to get involved with it, and uh, they felt, and I think they're correct, that ultimately the the House could could 
prevail in this? And we, you know, we really don't know a lot of, you know, we, we, we've talked a lot about this whole newness stuff. We don't know a good bit of what has been discovered and uh, hopefully we'll find out soon. And, and just to make a quick finish of this answer, sure. we have the more sort of conventional bipartisan uh, investigation going on in the Senate and uh, not sure what that's going to turn up, but it appears to to me that it's moving again away from the whole collusion idea and more into an investigation, what it should have been to begin with, just an investigation of Russian efforts to meddle uh, in the U.S. election, what U.S. authorities did about it and how they can prevent that in the future. Well, the question is whether there's enough gas in this tank to get the Democrats to the 28 elections and uh, overturn the presidency. I don't think so. I'm just curious what outrage they're going to have when this goes away. I'm thinking maybe it'll be environmental desperation because now we have these new energy regs that say they can drill off the shore of, uh, well, anywhere, frankly. And I just imagine Rob Reiner at this moment looking out the window at his Malibu beach house and weeping softly as he imagines oil rigs out there in the ocean ruining his view and his life in the earth. Ah, Well, that's the future. We'll talk about that later down the road. Byron, thanks so much for joining us today. It's always a pleasure. Byron, thank you. Thank you for having me, guys. Good luck. Um, is it cold in D.C.? Are they having this? Are they getting hit by the bomb storm? Do you know that, Peter? Uh, I don't know, to tell you the truth. I know that I have a son in New York who was sending me pictures yesterday. I know they've got eight or nine inches in even on the island of Manhattan. It's been accumulating. But in Washington, I don't know. Yeah. I want them to be snowbound for just weeks. I, I, I want them. I want the whole thing to collapse. I want people to realize that they should have stocked up on bagels and milk before. And I, I want to see YouTube commentary from haggard New Yorkers with a hair, facial hair of Randy Quaid saying, it's hell here, it's hell, we have nothing to do. Uh, but by the way, if you do have facial hair like Randy Quaid, you might want to get rid of it because it's kind of bizarre. And that's where Harry's comes in. Harry's is all about a great shave at a fair price. Three million guys have switched to Harry's. And uh, there's a reason why they do so. I'm one of them. Lord knows I'm happy with my blades. Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who are just fed up with paying an arm and a leg for razor blades. And by the way, you can use them on your arms or your legs. Uh, they started Harry's to fix the shaving problem, the cost, the ridiculousness. Harry's stripped out all the unnecessary features, you know, the vibrating handles, you know, the, the heating blades, the 56 lubricating strips and all that stuff. And the stripped out the unnecessary costs as well as to deliver customers one perfect razor at an amazing price. Now, a good shave comes down to some good basics and some good blades, right? Because Harry's owns the factory. They're able to deliver amazing quality blades for just $2 a blade compared to, compared to that, you know, 4 bucks or more you pay at the drugstore. And all the products backed by a 100% quality guarantee. So there's nothing like the first, there's nothing like the first, you know, stroke of a Harry's and there's nothing like the last. It's not like one of those Winston, you know, Smith 1984 victory blades where you're scraping after using the thing for six months. The last shave that you get with a Harry's is going to be as good as the first, frankly. Special offer for listeners if you want to find out what Harry's is all about. Uh, they're so confident you're going to love these blades, they'll give you the free trial shave set. Free, free, free. Sign up at harrys.com slash ricochet and just pay for shipping. Claim your free trial offer today from Harry's. $13 value for free when you sign up. Just cover shipping. What does that trial kit include, you might ask? Well, a weighted ergonomic razor handle, five precision-engineered blades with a lubricating strip and a trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. 
Get your free trial set at harrys.com slash ricochet right now. That's harrys.com slash ricochet. And we thank Harry's, as ever, for sponsoring this the Ricochet Podcast. Well, Peter, the new year begins. Um, it's the holidays are over. A sense of spirit and purpose suffuses us all. Did you make a resolution? We'll leave with this. Did you make any resolutions for the year to come? Uh, yet again, in 2018, as I have for a number of years now, I have resolved to give up broccoli. <laughs> How's that going for you? Uh, so far, no problem. I don't know why all these people have talked endlessly about breaking their New Year's resolutions. I have no trouble keeping mine. What about you, James? Um, I'm going to go to the gym a little bit more often. And uh, so far, it's been good. Um, Jim runs the uh, cigar shop in my building. (laughs) Okay. We both both took that one as seriously as Actually, there is no cigar shop in my building. I wish there was. Just a place where you could go down Prager-wise and just sit in a a leather chair and inhale the uh, the rich aromatic scents. But uh, no, there's no place downtown like that uh, at all. What there is in my office lobby is peace coffee that's what it's called peace coffee coffee peace as in the logo as in groovy man as in peace coffee yes so serious well not serious question but question this never occurred to me before but minneapolis is uh, of course connected by above street walkways so people can get around town without having to step out in the cold what do smokers do in the winter in minneapolis die off like flies They go outside and stand in four degree below weather oh and goodness. smoke. They do. I mean, all, all from time to time in the course of a day, you want to consult a small cigar. And yes, you go outside and uh, and there's, you just see all these people clustered around the buildings, great plumes of smoke coming from their mouths as they as they uh, get the nicotine fix. Wow. And, uh, that's that, that's what they do. But you're right about the Skyway system. It's quite it's quite wonderful. It it allows us to not die in the winter. It allows us to maintain complete possession of all of our toes and fingers, which is great. I mean, you know, you got those pinkies, you know, the little spares, but it's nice to walk around to go to lunch somewhere and not have to shiver and, you know, and and dip your fingers in a bucket of hot water when you get back to the office because it's four below. And wouldn't you know it, there are some people who don't like the skyways because they suck the vitality from the street, don't you know? And granted, in the summertime when it's 90 degrees, people are up in the air-conditioned skyways. But there's a certain group of people who want us all to be like those in Iceland and Finland and walking around outside being vibrant. They want a vibrant, bustling downtown. And the person who's most uh, enthused about tearing down the skyways, tearing them down, as you might not be surprised, is uh, is the son, I think it's the son, of our governor, who himself is the scion of the great family that uh, built this right. department store downtown. Um, so this, this is how the line goes. The family builds Target and the stores themselves, and then the son, not wanting to go into anything like retail or not capable of it, goes into politics. And right. then his son right. wants to reshape what we all want to do in, in the sense that we must conform to a new urbanist model of vitality. Well, <laughs> I got your vitality right here, buddy. Come and get it. Listen, folks, uh, <laughs> Casper, Harry's, Tracker, you'll find the links on the uh, Ricochet homepage and go there. Save money and, and thank them for sponsoring the podcast. By all means, go to iTunes and leave a review, preferably a good one, so more, more people can find the show. And, 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 and join Join Ricochet, for heaven's sakes. If you've enjoyed this podcast for $2.50 a month, you get the podcast here. You can comment. You can read all kinds of stuff. And you can experience what makes Ricochet different than any other site on the web. It's the member feed where people can 
come up with their own pieces. It's the it, it's the conversation in the community, right, Peter? That's that's what you Absolutely. guys were thinking about when you started this wonderful thing. Absolutely. Well, happy New Year, and we'll see. And next year, next next week, by the time we talk, the temperature should have gotten up to zero. Because I love looking at seeing zero and thinking there's just no temperature. We ran out. It's on backward. <laughs> <laughs> enjoy California. Enjoy Ricochet 3.0, folks. We'll see you there at the comments, and we'll see you here next week. Next week, James. Prospero Año Nuevo. Join the conversation.